Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. If y'all can follow along. Here it says this. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is God's word. Normally, we pray before we consider it, but I forgot to do one thing, so I'm just going to insert it here. Um, I wanted to thank all the alumni for coming back uh, on this special night. Can we thank some of these old schoolers? (laughs) I got halfway through reading that, and then a voice in my head said, you forgot to thank alumni. So thank y'all for coming. Whoever's come back for this night, we love you, miss you, and y'all folks here are missing out on not getting to know them, but they're missing out on not getting to know you, so it's, we're going to pray, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll jump in and talk about this passage. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness to RUF. Uh, thank you for your spirit, which is present and attending your word, and always converting, always convicting, always comforting. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would do the same tonight. I pray that you would uh, truly comfort the afflicted and simultaneously would you afflict the comfortable. I pray that you would teach us that eyes would be opened, that ears would be unclogged, that hearts would be softened, and that once again we would be uh, enabled and liberated to see and to behold Uh, and to really relish in the glory of who you are. And that's uh, always our prayer, and we pray that again tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. I love The Bachelor. Thank you. Figured I'd just wrap up the semester with that. Uh, It's, uh, you know the show. You know the show, The Bachelor. Uh, One guy dating 25 girls and narrows it down over the course of the... uh, the show till it gets down to the final one. Uh, terrible show and simultaneously glorious show. Uh, but as you also may remember, um, RUF took a group of students to Chicago for spring break this year. And as we were leading up to that week, me and a number of the girls began to put two and two together when we realized we were going to be in Chicago away from television on the season finale of The Bachelor. What's Sean going to do? Uh, so we quickly kind of you know, made a game plan after weeping and crying as far as, okay, we, we're not going to check our phones. We're not going to uh, check Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we're just going to try to stay away from media until kind of the buzz passes and then we'll be able to come back and watch it, which we never really did. We found out while we were there. But if you think about that, why were we so 
Why were we so concerned with seeing the ending of really the stupid round-robin marriage tournament reality TV show? Why were, why, why were we so obsessed with the ending of this thing? Well, I think it's because the ending is really the most important part of any story. The ending is the most important part of any story. I mean, this is why you've got to give spoiler alerts, because people get angry if you spoil the end of a movie. Some of you will even not watch the game if you know what the final score is. It ruins the whole experience, because all of the viewing viewing experience pressure comes down to kind of the ending. And it works the same way with sermons as well. Uh, the, the, you know, a good, a good preacher, in my opinion, will, will tie up everything that they're trying to say at the end into kind of one packaged point, put a spike at the end of it, and take one last chance to drill it into somebody's heart before they close in <laughs> prayer. But Jesus, being the good preacher that he is, does that very thing right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been spending all semester going through three chapters worth of one sermon, and here we are at the end, and he does that very thing. And what he does in this passage is he forces you to come to terms with these central claims of what Christianity is. He forces you to make a decision. You know, if you think about what Jesus is saying, this radical perspective about who God is, about what life is, about what spirituality is, he puts it in your face and says, you've got to to deal with this. There's two ways. You've got a choice on whether or not you're going to accept this or you're going to reject it, but there's no middle road. So what he does is he says, okay, if you, want, if you want to understand me, if you want to get in on who I am and what I'm doing, then you need to understand three things. How can we not end with three points? So here are the three points we're going to look at tonight. If you're going to get Jesus, if you're going to understand what he's all about, if you're going to understand what Christianity even is, you need to understand three things. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and then what Jesus requires. Three points, no alliteration, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus requires. We'll just look at these one at a time. First, who Jesus is. If you look back at verses uh, 21 through 23, Jesus starts talking about judgment day, which is always a fun topic. But he says there that there is coming a day when your life will be evaluated by a judge. When you will stand before the judge in heaven... And you will undergo his scrutiny over the basis of your entire life. And he will determine your eternal destiny. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus says, that person is me. Jesus claims to be the judge. Look at uh, verse 21 and 22. He says that people will come to him on that final day for him to make the final call. In verse 23 it says, then I will declare, from, I will declare to him and uh, depart from me. And that word declare is, is, is a courtroom pronouncement. It's banging the gavel. And so Jesus is basically saying claiming I am the judge of the universe. I, I'm God himself. I'm the one that makes the call on everybody's eternal destiny. Now, I'm well aware that there are a lot of you in this room that don't really know what to do with Jesus. That you don't really know what to think of him, don't really know uh, what to make of these sorts of issues. And uh, honestly, that's great. I'm glad that you've at least found RUF to be a place where you can come and try to sort out those things with us. But here's what I want you to see. Um, Most professors on this campus, and I would even say probably most students on this campus, would think... That Jesus is 
just merely a really good teacher, then the historical, real Jesus was not God, because, I mean, come on, that's crazy, but he was just a kind of a gifted, religious, spiritual guru. Now, I want you to put the, connect the dots here. Let's say I stood up in RUF, and I said, hey, everybody out there, there will come a time at the end of all time when you will come before me, Matt Howell, and I will evaluate your life on its uh, relationship to me, and I will make the decision on whether or not you go to heaven or you go to hell. Nobody would walk out of this room and think, Matt Howell's a great teacher. <laughs> you would think, kind of glad he's leaving. He got a little weird there at the end, didn't he? Uh, because, because this is, this is uh, I mean, if you, if you honestly look at what Jesus is saying, you can never walk away with the conclusion Jesus is merely a good teacher. Here are your options. Your options are Jesus is crazy, which disqualifies him from being a good teacher. He's lying through his teeth, which disqualifies him from being a good teacher. Or he's actually telling the truth which means that he's way more than just a good teacher. And so what you really have to come to terms with is who Jesus is. I know that there's a lot of you that have kind of come to terms with the fact that, well, maybe I'll buy into the reality that, that there is God. Maybe there is a God. Maybe some of you are dating people that don't really know what to do with the whole Jesus thing, but they've at least come around to the idea that maybe there's a God, a divine intelligence or something, whatever you want to call it. And that's great, but I want you to know that's not enough. Satan himself believes that. The, 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 the issue comes down to what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with crazy stuff that's coming out of this person's mouth? How are you going to get out from under these claims or how are you going to submit to them? And so really, uh, I think the best way for you to do that, for you to explore that, if you don't know what you think about Jesus, is to read the, the primary sources yourself, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the most historically reliable documents that we have of all historical documents. You want to sit down with lunch or coffee with me, I can tell you why that is true. But I'm only here for two more weeks, so not all at once. Um, but I think that would be great summer reading for you to just read the actual accounts for yourself and figure out, okay, what do I think about this? How do I, how do I explain this phenomenon of all these people, billions of people for the past 2,000 years claiming to actually believe that? So you've got to figure out, you've got to come to terms with who Jesus is. Here's the second thing you've got to come to terms with and you've got to understand. What Jesus has done. And just to set your expectations, this is going to be by far the longest of the three points. So settle in. So we've got to figure out what Jesus has done. Now most people would think Christianity is a personal get better program. You download a little Jesus into your life. You get religious. You stop doing those bad things. And you start being a good person, a good nice person. And that would be wrong. That's not what Christianity is. Look at verse 21 and 23 again. I think these, these verses are actually quite disturbing. But Jesus says there is a massive difference between good people and gospel people. Or if I can put it this way, another way to put it is there, there's a big difference between good people and real Christians. But the problem is, is that they look almost identical. The problem is, is that they look uh, very similar. And so when both of these people come before the judge on judgment day... Some will think that they're authentic Christians and they're not. Some will think that they have a relationship with God and they don't. 
which is really disturbing because these people are not, as we're going to look, these people are not terrible, nasty people. They're good people. They're good, religious, nice people. In fact, what Jesus does is he he gives you three traits to show you how good, moral, religious people are actually very identical to actual Christians. So let me just show you these three traits really quick. The first trait that good religious people have is that they have orthodox theology. They believe the right data. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. They come to Jesus and they call him Lord. The word Lord is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. So in other words, people are coming to Jesus and they're checking the I think you're God box. They're believing biblical, correct doctrine. They're they're saying, okay, I, I affirm that this is true. They're believing the right things. But not only do they have orthodox theology, secondly, they're emotionally engaged. They're emotionally um, on fire. Their hearts are activated because they don't just say Lord. They say Lord, Lord. Now, when we want to emphasize something, we want to put some emotional spice on something. We bold it, we italicize it, we put exclamation points underneath it. But in the Bible, what they would do is they would just double the word. That's how you got emotional intensity packed into something, is that you just double the word. So here are people that are coming to Jesus that are emotionally involved, emotionally engaged. These are the people that probably close their hands, uh, close their eyes, and raise their hands in worship. These are probably the people that, that have probably cried in a uh, worship experience. These are people that their hearts are really activated, really engaged. Third trait, not only are they orthodox theologically and engaged emotionally, they're, they're active in ministry. In verse 22, it says that they prophesied in Jesus' name. Prophesied, prophecy is just another way of saying preaching. We've, we've shared the gospel in Jesus' name. We've cast out demons in Jesus' name. We did mighty, many mighty works in Jesus' name. I mean, these people are doing spectacular, awesome stuff. People are coming to Christ through them. They're healing people. God's using them. They're actually successful in ministry. And these people come before the judge, as it were. Orthodox theology activated emotions, involved in ministry. And look what Jesus says to them. He says in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now this is the part where the the record scratches and you're like, I I don't know what to make sense of this. How how do you explain this? Because if anybody should get into heaven... Shouldn't it be these people? If anybody should get access to the kingdom of God, shouldn't it be these people? How do you, get, how do you explain this? Well, Jesus gives us uh, three clues. Lots of threes tonight, I'm just now realizing. He gives you three clues to help you explain why it is that these good, moral, religious, Christian-looking people don't have a relationship with him. Let me show you these one at a time. Here's the first clue. Notice the language of verse 22. It says, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z? I mean, there's a sense of shock there. And and the shock is there because there is a sense of entitlement. Whoa, how can you kick me out of heaven? Because look at all this stuff that I've done. This stuff that I have done guarantees me access, right? And what we find out here, the first clue is that good, moral, religious people do good stuff primarily to get God to owe them something. That's the first clue. Good, moral, religious people do good stuff, serve God, 
but fundamentally just so that God owes them. And really, if you're honest, I think this is how some of you think. You think, hey, God, I pray, I read the Bible, I go to RUF and church, I don't party, I keep myself pure sexually, I'm still a virgin. And if this is what I'm doing, then you owe me something in response. You owe me a happy life. You, I'm entitled for you to answer my prayers. If, if, if I'm doing all of this stuff, serving you, and I'm not getting anything out of it, and in fact, you bring hard stuff into my life, then what's the point? What's the point of me serving you if you're not going to answer my prayers, if I'm not going to get a happy life, and then you bring in hard stuff into it? Because good moral people serve God to get stuff. Uh, this reminded me uh, when I was in high school. Me and my group of friends would every now and then go pool hopping which was a term that we invented. We would, uh, at about midnight, we would break into the local golf course, jump the fence, and usually this golf course had a ton of houses that were lined up around uh, kind of the edge of the golf course, and a lot of these houses had pools in it. So we would break into people's backyards at midnight and go swimming in their pools. And uh, sometimes it would be very stealthy. We would kind of creep in the back and just kind of sit in the pool, and all the lights were off, and we'd kind of see into their living room. Uh, And sometimes, if they had a diving board, um, we would do enormous cannonballs and scream and cause all kind of ruckus and then run into the night. And... There's nothing like running from the police on uh, a golf course at midnight soaking wet in your bathing suit. Um, But if you think about our relationship with the families of these homes, uh, our relationship with these people is that we did not, we had no intention of ever getting to know them. We didn't want to have a real relationship with them. We just wanted them for their pools. We were just using them for their pools. And that was the extent of our relationship. We didn't want them, we just wanted their stuff. And it's the same way with good moral religious people. You can, at least it's very possible, to have all the right theology, to be engaged in worship, to be doing stuff in ministry, and all of it be just a big, sophisticated way of using God to get stuff. To get heaven, to get him to answer your prayers, to get a happy life to get a husband or a wife, to get something that you want. So you do all this Christian stuff not to get him, but to get what he may provide you with. That's the first clue for why these people don't have access to him and why they don't have access to heaven. Here's the second clue. Every activity, did you notice? Every activity that they listed is all external. It's all outward behavior. Preaching, prophecy, casting out demons, doing many mighty works, that's all outward external behavior because that's about as deep as good religious people know how to go and know how to operate. Which means is if you are just a good moral person, life for you becomes a big list of rules. A big rule list that you've got to check off each and every day. You've got to pray every day. You've got to read the Bible every day. You've got to go to church every week. You've got to stop drinking. You've got to stop cussing. You've got to start doing this and stop doing this. And you've got to do this 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 and you've got to do this. It's all external behavior. Just give me the rules. Tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to think about the issues. Just tell me the person I need to vote for. 
don't teach me how to follow Jesus in the midst of my romantic relationship. Just give me the Christian dating rules. All external behavior. And what's actually really dangerous about this is that you can do all of these things really well. Some of you can, can play the part and dress up in Christian clothes and do all of the behavior and be a nice person and stop doing this bad behavior and start doing this good behavior and all of it be di- really disconnected from who Jesus is. And you can be a very good moral person, which is great, but just don't think that that's Christianity. Just don't think because you're a good, moral, nice person that that means that you're a Christian. That's the second clue. The third clue is how they think about what it is that they've done. If you look at verse 22 again, it says, We've done many mighty works in your name. I mean, not only have they done mighty works for God, we've done awesome stuff for God. We've done many mighty works. We've done a crap load of awesome stuff for you, God. Which means... Uh, they are far too aware of their accomplishments and far too impressed with themselves. And so here's the question for you on this point. Uh, Are you more passionate about what you're doing for God or are you more passionate about what he's done for you? Are you more obsessed and do you think more about what it is that you're doing for for God or are you more obsessed about what he has done for you? To put it another way, is, the focus, is your focus on the Christian life or is it on the Christ? So, good, uh, moral, religious people come to God and expect a relationship with God on the basis of what they have done. And Jesus says, I never knew you. So here's the difference. The way that you enter the kingdom of heaven the way that you understand and hook into this is not to relate to God on the basis of what you have done, but to relate to God on the basis of what Jesus has done. That's why in verse 23, he says, I never knew you. The issue is about whether or not Jesus knows you, that you have an intimate, personal relationship with him, whether or not uh, you're connected to him. It's not about your accomplishments. You could have done a million amazing things, and that doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you're connected to him. It's not about what you have done or what are doing or what you will do. It's whether or not you're connected to him. So what has Jesus done for you? Everything. He's done everything. He's lived in your place. He's died in your place. And he was raised in your place. If you think about what Jesus is saying on the cross, what is he saying on the cross? He says, my father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's looking at God the father and saying, why, why are you crushing me right now? You're forsaking me. You're casting me out because what God is doing in that moment is he's wrapping up Jesus with all of our failures, with all of our sin, with all of our hypocrisy, with all of our greed, with all of our pride, with all of our lust, and putting it on him. And he is saying to Jesus, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. He's casting Jesus out so that when you connect to him by faith, he will look at you and say, enter into my kingdom, my righteous son and daughter. He's done it all. He has done everything. He's paid everything that was due. Uh, Usually at the kitchen table, my wife and I will ask our little two-and-a-half-year-old Zoe Kate questions. And 
Uh, it's not rare for our daughter to not know the answer to the question. So we will like point to a triangle and say, Zoe Kate, what's that shape? And she'll just kind of stare at us blankly, blinking, confused. And what I'll do is I'll, is I'll whisper in her ear and I'll say, it's a triangle. So, okay, what's that shape? Triangle. And we clap and we cheer like she's a child prodigy. <laughs> That's the same way that it works with God. God looks at you and asks of you and demands of you perfection. Not just for you to be innocent of sin, not just be a good person, but infinitely, perfectly righteous. And then he provides you with the very thing he's asking. He gives you the very thing he's asking. And then when you come to him and present not your works, not your accomplishments, but you actually present Jesus back to the Father, the Father claps and cheers and gives you the delight and the praise, which is secure and it is eternal and it is invincible. Jesus has bought the Father's smile for you permanently. I mean, I, I often ask students this question if I'm sitting down with you one-on-one and we're having coffee or whatever, and you're feeling bad about yourself and you consider yourself to be a Christian because you've screwed up and uh, you've done something wrong, and I'll usually ask you this question. If you can look up to God's face right now and just picture what's the look on his face as he thinks about you right now, what's the look on his face? And I normally get, well, a little disappointed Kind of this look of, when are you going to get it together? When are you going to kind of pull it around and start uh, responding to what I've done for you? And I've got good news because that's, that's not true. If you're a Christian, what he has purchased for you is the Father's eternal smile. Eternal delight. It says in the Old Testament, Zephaniah chapter 3, that he delights over you with singing. You ever think about God singing over you? That excited to be with you? Because of Jesus, not because of you? So here's the deal. Good, good moral religious people will come to God and say, look at all my stuff. Lord, Lord, look at my accomplishments. Look at all this stuff I've done. <clears throat> Gospel people would never talk like that. Gospel people would say, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't want you, don't, do not look at me. Instead, look at Jesus as my substitute. And the beauty of the gospel is that he will. You have to understand what he has done. You have to understand who Jesus is, what he has done, and lastly, briefly, you've also got to understand what Jesus requires. Jesus illustrates this whole point in uh, verse 24 through 27. And so I'll just summarize it for you. Jesus says, okay, let's just say you have two houses. Uh, To the naked eye, they look completely identical. Both look the same. The only difference is, is their foundation. What they're built on. So one guy built a house and he dug down deep into the sand and there was a rock and he built his house on the solid foundation of the rock. Next guy said, I don't really want to dig down. I'm just going to build it right on the sand. Two houses, completely identical, radically different foundations. Storm comes, knocks down the one without a foundation. What's he saying? What's this mean? Here's what this means. You can have two people sitting side by side at RUF, at church, and they both look identical. They're both trying to read the Bible. They're both trying to pray. They're both trying to care for the poor. They're both trying to be good people. But they're each doing it for radically different reasons. Radically different foundations and motivations for why they're doing it. One person is doing all this stuff in order to get God to love them. The other person is doing all this stuff 
because they're absolutely convinced that God already loves them. And so what you find out is that what you do is not nearly as important as why you do it. What you do is not nearly as important as why it is that you're doing it. And according to Jesus in verse 21, the difference between the good person and the gospel person is that the gospel person does the will of the Father. This is really crazy because what this means is you can be doing good Christian stuff, reading the Bible, praying, going to church, doing all that stuff, and and if it's not connected to Jesus, if he's not the foundation and the reason for why you're doing it, then you're not doing God's will. You're the person that's built your house on sand, and it's worthless. It falls apart. In fact, Jesus Jesus doesn't just say it's worthless. If you look at verse 23, he says it's sinful. He calls it works of lawlessness. So hear the weight of this. Hear the weight of this. Your good, well-meaning religious activity is evil and worthless unless... It's connected to a personal, vibrant, living relationship with Jesus based off of what he has already done for you. I know that's a lot to take in, but that's what he's saying. He's saying your good behavior, your being good little people out there, is worthless and it's actually evil if it's disconnected from who Jesus is. I know that's a big pill, but think of it like this. I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate it. I heard a friend of mine uh, Illustrate it this way, and so um, this just made sense to me. Uh, it goes like this. Um, think about, um, for those of you who are dating somebody or have tried to date somebody and it's just kind of failed, think about what it's like when you're initially trying to pursue somebody and getting to know somebody kind of in that initial electric, infatuated stage of a relationship. Think about that. And think about that compared to your relationship with your professors. Uh, Hopefully radically different. (laughs) But um, (laughs) uh, for your relationship with your teacher, with your professor, for the most part, what you're interested in is whether or not what they're teaching is going to be on the test. Right? I mean, teachers talking, maybe even passionate about something, and somebody asks... um, do we need to know any of this for the test? <laughs> and if the teacher says no, everyone zones out and goes back to texting, right? <laughs> because your relationship with your pet professor basically works like this. Tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to do so that I can get my grade and I can be on my way. But for your relationship with the dating person, when you're falling in love with someone, uh, you, you don't approach that the same way. You don't, have this, the, the, you, don't, you don't say, well, just tell me the bare minimum of what I need to keep doing so that we can keep dating each other. You actually kind of turn into a CSI detective, and you're trying to snoop out all the different clues on what they like. And when you figure out what they like, it's, it's almost as if those become commands for you. So, for example, you find out that the girl that you're pursuing likes frozen yogurt. Oh, guess where you're taking her uh, the next time y'all are hanging out? You just find yourself a sweet frog. Or you find out that this person likes the Avid Brothers, and, oh, here are some concert tickets for the next time you know, they're passing through Asheville. Because that's, that's how it works in a love relationship. When you're in a love relationship, you want to find out what it is that delights them, what pleases them, and then it's almost like a command to you to do it. But your relationship with the professor is... Tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to do so that I can get what I need to get and get out of here. For good, moral, religious people, 
They look at God and say, tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to do so I can just get to heaven, so I can kind of get my answers, my, my prayers answered, so I can get stuff out of this. Just tell me the minimum of what I need to do. But gospel people, Christian people, don't think like that. We think, what is it? What is it that delights God? And whatever that is, that's what I want to do. I want to please my Father. His, whatever it is that he delights in become commands for me. And, I, and I'm anxious and I'm excited to do those things. And so, because of that reality, Christians try to live out the commands of the Sermon on the Mount. Not perfectly, of course. We will fail. We always fail. But we do it not because it's just one more thing to try to get God to love us more. Because the gospel tells us he can never love us any more than he already does in Jesus. So that's what we do. We respond to what he requires from us out of pure love and pure gratitude and pure joy. And I'll end with this. Uh, Someone earlier this week asked me, they said, okay, you're coming up on your final thing at RUF. Uh, what, what, what are you going to say? What's, uh, what's, the, what's your last message? What, what, um, do you have any you know, topics that you've just kind of been itching to talk about you haven't been able to get around and you kind of slip in at the end or something? And my response was more or less, uh, I, I really only have one message. At the end of the day, uh, the only message that I know and the only message that I care about and the only message that I think Christianity presents to you is that God loves sinners. And he's made a way for sinners to connect with him because of Jesus. So that's what the broken record of grace that we've been pounding over and over and over and over and over in RUF is. We fail. We are inadequate. We're weak. We run from God, and yet his love and his grace is such that he runs after us more so. And in light of that, the way that we respond is that we live out the Sermon on the Mount. We become a counterintuitive community where we're radically loving and radically needy. We become an influential community where we live as salt and light right here on this campus, living out the reality of the gospel. We become a righteous community, meaning that we become who we already are in Christ. We become a hatred-hating community where we repent of our very present and very real anger and hatred. We become a ferociously pure community where we militantly deal with our sexual sin and our sexual brokenness. We become a loving community where we concretely lay down and serve not not just our friends but our enemies. We become an authentic community where we start recognizing and owning up to our own hypocrisy. We become a praying community where we're hungry and desperate to commune with God personally. We become a devoted community where our treasure is Jesus and it's it's no longer our money. We become a secure community where we apply the cross to our anxiety and to our worry. We become a tolerant community where we gently and lovingly engage with the people that disagree with us and that we disagree with. And we become a responsive community where we sit and we soak 
and God's grace for sinners like us, and then we live out the implications of that. May that be true for RUF. May that be true for you. And may that be true for me. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that your grace would become more profound, more real, uh, more personal uh, to us. I I pray that you would give us eyes to see our great need for a Savior. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see our great Savior for our need. Thank you for this community. Thank you for their love um, for each other, for their love for you, feeble as it is. And thank you for your love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.